So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to kind of hone in on the last part of the chapter, 24, verses 24 to 27, but I'll read from verse 13 and following. Paul says this, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I did not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make use of my right in the gospel? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win, win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that, I by, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may over, uh, obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, there's a term for, from physics that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, the term is entropy. Uh, and entropy, technically, it means that in a closed system, I'm not even sure what that means. If you're a physicist, you know what that means. But in a closed system, things tend to move from order to disorder. Seems like a complicated thing, but I experience entropy on a daily basis. And maybe you have as well. Entropy is when you have a sink full of dishes and you spend an hour cleaning every last one of them and then the next day the sink is full again. Entropy is when you clean the whole house from top to bottom and then the next week it looks like a hurricane went through. Entropy is when you spend months counting calories, exercising, doing everything that you can to eat healthy and you lose 10 pounds. And then you take the foot off the brake for just a moment and then you look at the scale and you're up 15. It's entropy. We have this tendency to move from order to disorder, from order to chaos. And I think most people are, are driven by entropy more than anything else. It's not only the little things in life, but also the big things in life. Um, there was a study that was done uh, a few years ago, and uh, a psychologist by the name of William Damon wrote this book called The Path to Purpose, Helping Our Children Find Their Calling. And in that study... Uh, they studied um, thousands of kids, I think 1,200 kids from the ages of uh, 12 to 26. And they followed them over a period of five years. And he discovered some remarkable things. He said there's always been kind of outlier kids that drift, but what he found was more and more kids lacked purpose and direction in their life. 
He said this in an interview, but I, I do think we have a special problem today in the numbers of kids and the kind of trouble they're having in finding a sense of direction. People tend to be driven by this entropy. We just kind of go with the flow, so to speak. And one of the things in our culture that we're driven by is convenience. I'd say that was kind of the biggest driver of our behavior in our culture is convenience. Uh, law professor and technology expert claims that exact thing. He claims that this is an underestimated force that drives our daily lives. We want everything easy, efficient, quickly. He says it's the most powerful force shaping our individual lives and our economy. Evan Williams, co-founder of tw Twitter, put it this way, convenience decides everything. We think that we're making choices sometimes based on our preferences, but oftentimes we're making them based on convenience. For example, we might say that we like to brew our coffee at home. You know, save money, maybe we like the particular br brand of coffee that we brew, but we go to Tim Hortons because it's easy, it's fast, it's convenient. We tend to be driven toward the convenient route. And of course there's some good things. You know, it, convenience is not all bad, but we need to be careful. And Wu warns of the struggles of convenience. He says, with its promise of smooth, effortless efficiency, it threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that help give meaning to life. Created to free us, it can become a constraint on what we are willing to do, and thus, in a subtle way, it can enslave us. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much. See, the thing is, fighting against entropy, fighting against meaninglessness is difficult. I mean, it's easy to just kind of go with the flow. It's easy to gain weight. It's hard to lose weight. It's hard to clean a house. It's easy to mess up the house. It's hard to do dishes. It's easy to dirty dishes. We have this tendency to drift towards entropy, and it's easy to do. And it's hard to fight against it. It's far hard to fight with purpose. And oftentimes when we have the sense of purpose, we resolve we're going to change things in our life, we're going to be deliberate and intentional. Often what happens is we face opposition. In particular, I think the enemy, Satan, wants to keep us in this place of disorder, this place of chaos. He wants to keep us just kind of going with the flow rather than living meaningful and purposeful life. And so what oftentimes what happens is we resolve, we're going to live lives of purpose, and then we experience opposition, and then we just kind of drift back to this entropy, what's convenient, going with the flow. It's kind of like if you ever had a caffeine headache before. You know, maybe you drink a few cups of coffee each morning, and you decide, you know, maybe you want to cut back on the, the amount of coffee that you drink each day. And so, you know, you have this bad headache, and you know, you try to push through it, try to fight through it, uh, but then uh, you have a big day, a busy day at work. You're facing a lot of different challenges, and you know if you drink that cup of coffee, it's going to be all better. And so maybe you give in to that. Maybe you drink a cup of coffee, and then you say, well, I'll try again tomorrow, but you don't do that, right? We're driven towards the convenient rather than towards purpose, because purpose and change are difficult. In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is talking about this idea of entropy. He says this in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
So let's say that you're in a, a race, and there's, you know, say, hundreds of people racing with you. In a race, say a 5K, you might have three different types of people. The first, you have one set of people that are just trying to, to win the race. So the, the starting gun goes off, and these people are off to the races, literally. And they're up at the front, and they're, you know, neck and neck, you know, just fighting to get to the, to the, to the finish line, try, fighting to win the race. You know, and they get done, and, you know, they can hardly breathe. You know, some of them, they feel like they're going to throw up. They can hardly walk because they're pouring out all of their heart and soul into this race to try, try to win. Then you have other people that are kind of in the middle of the pack. And they're, you know, expending some energy. They're, they're working hard. They're sweating. But they're not going to kill themselves. They know they're not going to win the race. They know that... The finish line is going to be there when they get there. So they're going to run hard. They're going to try to finish, but they're not going to kill themselves. They're not going to overdo it. And then, on the other hand, you have the last group. And the last group, uh, maybe they're not really interested in the race at all. Maybe the last group, maybe they just signed up for the race because, you know, maybe a friend asked them to be part of it, or maybe they're just trying to raise money for charity, and they're not really interested in the race at all. So maybe they're just kind of talking and, you know, walking and maybe running a little bit, not breaking a sweat. And eventually they'll get to the finish line, but, you know, they're, they have no uh, movement, no purpose. They're not trying to win or are really in the race. And I think that's a picture of the Christian life. There's some people who are really obeying God, taking God at his word, going with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength after the things of God. Those are the people who are like trying to win, so to speak. And then you have other people, probably the average churchgoer, maybe they're, you know, showing some evidence of obedience, showing some effort, maybe doing some spiritual things, putting forth some effort, but there's a limit. Christianity is just kind of a part of their life. It's a it's not a impetus, it's not something that impacts everything that they do. And then on the other hand, finally you have people who uh, maybe aren't interested in Christianity at all. Maybe they're they're just coming for uh, to listen to music or or for the social aspect of there, and they're not really in the race, so to speak. And in this passage, Paul tells us that each one of us need to be in that first category. Each one of us need to run the race of life to win. We need to have that kind of dedication, that kind of passion. C.S. Lewis once said this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. See, if the gospel is true, and we believe it is, if the gospel is true, it demands all of our effort, all of our energy, all of our strength. In this passage, Paul is going to give us kind of a snapshot, a picture of what it looks like to run the, win, the, the, the race of life. To run to win the race of life. So what does it look like? What is this picture that Paul is painting? It looks like being intentional about everything. Paul says this, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So Paul is using this metaphor of, of athletes and their training. And the reason he was doing that was because in the city of Corinth, there was the Isthmian Games, this great kind of Olympic type, type event. And so people would have been familiar with this imagery. And so what are some of the things that uh, athletes exercise self-control in? 
The first thing is time. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called uh, Success, or it was called uh, Outliers, The Story of Success. And in this book, he suggested that people need to spend uh, about 10,000 hours at a task in order to become a master, become proficient at it. So if you're going to become good at anything, particularly sports, you have to invest a lot of time. And so that's why Olympian Michael Phelps, for example, was said to not mi miss one practice from the age of 11 to 16. That's why uh, Kobe Bryant was said to work out from 5 to 7 a.m. when he was in high school before school, not including team practices. Kobe Bryant was said to play his uh, high school basketball teammates one-on-one -on -one to 100. Uh, according to a Team USA trainer, uh, he once held a workout from 4.15 a.m. to 11 a.m. and refused to leave, uh, leave the gym until he made 800 shots. Uh, I heard a story, similar story about Phil Mickelson, who had spent hours and hours, you know, trying to make these short putts, and I think he, you know, wouldn't quit until he made like 200 in a row or something like that. They did a survey of college athletes, Division I football athletes, and they determined that uh, Division I college football players spend an average of over 40 hours per week practicing, not including games. In order to be good at something, you have to spend time. There's a story uh, about Rod Rodney Harrison tells, safety from the Patriots. And uh, he was coming to the Patriots, just joining the Patriots, and he went to the weight room at 6.30 one morning. And uh, he found Tom Brady there, and he, Brady has been working out for some time, was all sweaty, and Brady says to him, well, good afternoon. So Harrison gets the hint, so he's, uh, he's going to come a little bit earlier the next day. So he comes 15 minutes earlier, 6.15. Brady's there, same, working out. Brady says the same thing to him. Good morning, or good afternoon. So the next morning, Harrison says, all right, I'm going to get there before Brady gets there. So he shows up at 5.45. Sure enough, Brady's already there. And this time Brady says to him, good afternoon, good afternoon, twice. So the next day, he gets up even earlier, comes at 5.30 in the morning. And he walks into the weight room, and before Brady has a chance to say anything, he basically says, Tom, I'm not coming any earlier than 5.30. See, in order to be good in something, you have to put time into it. That's what athletes do. Uh, in his book, The Social Animal, David Brooks points to current research that reveals the common denominator in attaining excellence in a field. He says it's long-term commitment to discipline and practice. Brooks writes this, he says in 1997, Gary McPherson studied 157 randomly selected children as they picked out and learned a musical instrument. Some went on to become fine musicians and some faltered. McPherson searched for the traits that separated those who progressed from those who did not. IQ was not a good predictor. Neither was oral sensitivity, math skills, income, or sense of rhythm. The best single predictor was a question McPherson asked the students before they even selected their instruments. How long do you think you will play? The students who planned to play for a short time did not become very proficient. The students who planned to play for a few years had modest success, but there were some children who said, in effect, I want to be a musician, I'm going to play my whole life. And those were the children who soared. These were the children that recognized, this is what I want. I'm going to become a musician, and they put the time and the effort into becoming a musician, and they were successful. 
As Christians, we need to have the same mindset. We need to have the goal in mind to come like Christ. And we need to put the time in if that's going to become a reality. We can't grow in the spiritual life if we don't put the time in. We don't put the time in serving. We don't put the time in reading God's word, spending time in prayer, spending time with God's people. We just can't grow without giving God our time. So that's the first thing that athletes do to develop self-control. The second thing that athletes do is they they develop self-control in areas that seem like they don't matter or seem like they're not related to the goal. For example, uh, there are many sports teams and many professional athletes who will hire sports psychologists who will help them deal with kind of the ups and downs of competition. Uh, there are many teams that will hire sleep specialists. Uh, I, knew, I know one uh, NFL athlete, professional athlete, hired a neuropsychologist who would help him develop brain exercises to help his brain stay sharp so he could make quick decisions. Many uh, athletes have a very strict diet regimen you know, avoiding all sugar, avoiding certain foods. Uh, the tennis star Novik Djokovic was said to eat the following breakfast, and it had to be in this specific order. He'd eat a large cup of room temperature water, two tablespoons of honey, a nutrient uh, muesli or, or oatmeal, nuts, seeds, fruit, coconut oil, and then non-dairy milk or coconut water. Michael Phelps was said to sleep in an altitude chamber where it kind of simulated you being up uh, high on a mountain and said to aid in recovery. So these athletes do these things that are kind of seem like they're unrelated to the sport. Uh, Kobe Bryant was said to, uh, in 2008, he was said to ask Nike to shave just a couple millimeters off of his shoe so that he would have like a hundredth better reaction time. Athletes, professional athletes, are concerned about the little details, things that most people would say don't really matter that much. Now, I play church softball. Some of, some of you here play church softball, or maybe you play another sport. But here's the thing about church softball. I don't see church softball as a part of my identity. When I meet people, I don't say, hey, I'm Matt, and I play church softball. I don't get up at 4.15 every morning and work out to become a better church softball player. <laughs> Maybe I need to make some changes. <laughs> when I see a donut, I don't say, hmm, I'm not going to have that donut because I'm not going to be a very good softball player next year. I, it's not that important to me. It's not a part of my identity. It's just something that I enjoy, something I'd like to get better in, but it's not that important. But if you're a professional athlete, if it's a part of your identity, it's, you're thinking about everything. Your sleep, your diet, what you do outside of uh, the sport, making sure you don't waste too much energy. Everything that you do revolves around that sport, or performing in that sport. And I think the same thing is true spiritually. If Christ is not a part of our identity, then maybe we'll do a few Christian things here and there, but it won't be a part of our life. What we do with our finances, what we do uh, with our relationships, it won't be all that important. Maybe, you know, when we come to church, you know, we'll sing and praise the Lord, but then when we go on Monday morning, it's not all that important. It becomes just a component of our life rather than the most important thing in our life. And yet Christ should be a part of our identity. When we 
look at our lives through the lens of pleasing Christ, we think, how can I leverage my time, my money, my possessions, my behavior to please Christ? It's not just about Sunday morning. It's about Monday morning. It's about every moment of the day pleasing Christ. Luke chapter 16, Jesus says this, the one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You have to be faithful in the little things to be entrusted with the big things. We have to be faithful with things that don't, we feel like maybe don't matter that much, the small things. So nobody wakes up one morning and decides, hey, today I'm going to go win a Super Bowl. I mean, it'd be nice if you could do that, but you can't do that. If you wanted to win a Super Bowl, you'd have to start when, you know, you're just a young athlete, and you'd have to go to the weight room and spend hours and hours and hours. You'd have to go to practices. You'd have to deal with injuries. You'd have to make your high school team and start on your high school team and make a college team, start on the college team, and thousands and thousands of hours. You have to make it to the NFL, make it on a team that's going to compete. You need to put all your effort forward. And then, maybe then, you might be able to win a Super Bowl. You can't just wake up and decide you're going to win a Super Bowl. It consists of a thousand little acts of faithfulness. And that's what it looks like to win the Christian life. It's not about just one action here or there. It's not just about what we do on Sunday morning. It's about a thousand little acts of faithfulness. Being faithful even with things that are small, even with things that seems like it doesn't matter that much. I mean, oftentimes people get so caught up in the question of like, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? Does he want me to, do, you know, go on this career path or this career path? Does he want me to move here or move there? And, and those are important questions for us to think about. But the most important thing that God wants us to do is he wants us to be faithful where we're at. Faithful in the little things. And if we're faithful in the little things, he'll give us big things. So what does it look like to run the race to win? It looks like being intentional about everything, allowing everything in our lives to be an act of worship. But the second uh, picture of what it looks like to run the race to win is not wasting anything. Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. The image here is a boxer who's just punching. And when he's punching, he's wasting all of his energy. His punches have no purpose. They're inefficient. They're useless. And Paul says, I have a purpose in my life. I have a mission. I'm not just boxing the air. I'm just not running around aimlessly. I'm just not driven by this uh, entropy or convenience. I have a purpose in my life. Sadly, many people's lives today don't have that purpose. We live lives that are filled with activity. We're busier than ever, but our lives seem to lack more and more purpose. So Christmas is coming up, and uh, many of us have been to uh, a party where we maybe bring a white elephant gift. Uh, and there's a legend that's kind of behind that idea of the white elephant gift. Um, the legend says that there was this king named King Siam, and when he wanted to defeat an enemy, what he would do was he would send them a gift. 
and the gift would be a white elephant. Uh, the white elephant was said to be, you know, this kind of very rare uh, white albino elephant, and uh, people believed that they were sacred. And so when the person received this white elephant, they had no choice. They had to take care of this elephant. I mean, it was sacred to them, and so they would devote all of their resources and all of their strength into caring for this, an this animal, and he would just wait for uh, that for all of the energy and all this time to be put into this animal, and then he would attack them. I think some of the things in our life keep us from the most important things. Some of the things that we do in our lives keep us from the things that God is calling us to do. I, I think that some of us honestly don't have any time to serve the Lord. We don't have any time to serve the Lord because we're too busy serving ourselves. We're too busy on our own path. We're too busy deciding what we need rather than following after what Christ wants for us. And this should never be. Everything we do should be an act of worship. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we should never have any downtime. We should never enjoy life. But you think about the image of an athlete. Everything they do is focused on the goal. Now, of course, they might, you know, Take some time to rest. Take some time to do thing, things that are unrelated to that goal. But the ultimate purpose is to win the prize. And that should be our goal as believers as well. The ultimate purpose is to win the prize. To have that kind of intentionality in our life. John Calvin, famous theologian, was on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, he was doing something interesting. He was working. And his friends told him, can you just rest for a little bit? Like, you are very sick. You are on your deathbed. Just rest. Just cool it. And he responded and said to him, would the Lord find me idle when he returns? And even on his deathbed, he wanted to be intentional with what he was doing. We should have that kind of intentionality in our lives. So those are two pictures that Paul paints, what it looks like to run the race to win. It means being intentional about everything, not wasting anything. And to kind of sum it up, uh, as believers, we're called to run the race of life with intense drive, determination, and purpose. Just like an athlete, professional athlete, has this intense drive and determination to win the race, we should have the determination to win the race of life. And Paul demonstrates this in his ministry. We see that throughout this chapter. Look at the things he says in verse 12. He says this, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Christ. In verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. In verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people that I might by any means save some. So that's what we're called to as believers. And the final thing that Paul tells us is he tells us why. Why are we running this race with such strength, determination? Why are we running the race to win? And he contrasts our reward with an earthly reward. He says, uh, earthly athletes, they win and they win a crown. Now, in that day and age, the crown would have been made of, you know, plants, celery, other, other type things. Crown that would soon fade away. So they would be working towards winning a crown that's going to fade away and working towards the applause of men, which is also going to fade away. You think about today, 
what athletes, professional athletes, are, are going towards. Maybe they're going towards a Stanley Cup or NBA Finals Championship, a World Series, a Super Bowl ring. And they're going after this object that declares that they're victorious, that they're the best at what they do. And they're going after the applause of people who cheer them on for winning and being at the top of their game. But all those things are temporary. I mean, you think about it, and it's like, who won the Super Bowl five years ago? I mean, you could guess the Patriots because they win all the time, or used to win all the time. <laughs> but, you know, you think about it, who won the Super Bowl like five years ago, seven years ago? And unless you're like a super fan, you probably don't know who won every Super Bowl. Fame, winning, is temporary. Bill Parcells once said this, famous NFL coach, no matter how much you've won, no matter how many games, no matter how many championships, no matter how many Super Bowls, you're not winning now, so you stink. <laughs> you think about that, and it's a victory that's fleeting. It's a reward that is so temporary, applause that's so temporary. And yet these athletes put everything into that task. How they sleep, how they eat, thousands of hours of training, dealing with injuries towards that goal. It's fading away. How much more should we, we put forth effort to a goal, a prize that is never fading? Paul says that we're aiming towards a different kind of crown. A crown of righteousness, eternal life that will never fade away. And unlike the crowds who are, the, the athletes who are seeking the applause of the crowd, we're seeking the applause of our Heavenly Father. And the goal and the hope that one day we'll enter into heaven and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. 2016, uh, there were 26,639 people who ran in the Boston Marathon. There's a la lady by the name of Fran Droz. She's 72 years old, and she was running in her 75th marathon, and she was the 26,639th person to complete the race. Dead last. By the time she crossed the finish line, all the crowds had gone, all the prizes had been handed out. Everyone was gone. The only people who were there were people who were tearing down uh, the stands and cleaning things up. But there was someone there who was important to her. And she was running this race for a different reason than some people. She wasn't running the race to win the race. She wasn't trying to win that prize, whatever that prize was. She was running this race for cancer. She was running for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And the reason she was doing that was because her husband was a cancer survivor and was currently dealing with cancer at that time. And when she crossed the finish line, her husband was there waiting for her, smiling, and went and took and put a medal around her neck. As one uh, news outlet put it, it, it turns out this race's loser is quite the winner. See, she lost the race. She was dead last. But she wasn't running for the crowds. She wasn't running for a prize. She was running for her husband. And his favor was all that mattered. When she got to that finish line and he put that metal around her neck, that was all that mattered. 
the same thing is true for us as believers. As believers, we're called to run the race with purpose, determination, passion. The reason we're running is for that prize, the crown of righteousness, that if we're faithful, Christ will put it on our head. And that affirmation from our Father where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the kingdom that's been prepared for you for, before the foundation of the world. That's our goal. The crown of righteousness that's unfading and the affirmation of our Heavenly Father. And that's why we should run the race with everything that we have. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you ran the race with purpose. That in every moment that you lived, you were faithful to the Father. That you showed love to those around you. Lord, we thank you for your example. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, help us to run the race well. Help us to look at your cross, to look at the reward, the crown of righteousness which you have prepared for us. The hope and the goal of being found faithful to you and help us to run with everything that we have. Help us to be intentional about everything. Help us not to waste anything, but help us to be so focused and so determined to reach that goal. In Christ's name I pray.